Welcome to the Mind Body Musings Podcast, the show for everyone and anyone that is ready to break free from the dogmatic chains of the health and fitness industry and create their own life free from restrictions. Now, introducing your host, Madeline Moon, a former fitness model gone sane and the author of the popular self-love book, The Perfection Myth. If you dig the show and you're looking for more insight on how to stop food and exercise from controlling your life, check out her website, maddiemoon.com, and grab your free guide. If you're ready to end dieting once and for all, it's time you learn how to pursue real health instead. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone and welcome back to the show. This makes episode 47 and today is certainly going to be a great one because we're going to be jamming with Melissa A. Fabello, a sexuality educator, body image and eating disorder activist, and a media literacy vlogger based out of Philadelphia. She is a managing editor of Everyday Feminism and a PhD student in Human Sexuality Studies, where her research interest is in the effectiveness of current sexuality-focused psychoeducational interventions and eating disorder recovery programs. I'm psyched about the conversation we're about to have, so let's get this baby going. Hey, Melissa, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So I spent probably all of, I think it was like Tuesday, like I spent pretty much half the day watching your videos over like over and I just kept going through them because they're so like you're so cute but you're also probably one of the smartest people on YouTube honestly yeah, well thanks and I think that's a really good use of your time honestly like as far as I'm concerned so I hey I learned a lot I was like I want to make sure this I have the right questions for this interview because I know there's like so many different things that you study and I just want to make sure that I could get the right questions down for you. But man, it was really entertaining. Like there's some stuff I just like, you're really good about portraying the message you want to portray it, but also including lots of like facts and like stats in a way that like normal people can understand. Great. That's, I mean, that's kind of the point. I mean, it's hard because I think that some people, you know, people who do research and people who are in academia, I think that they tend to have a really hard time making their you know, the things that they think about accessible to a wide audience. Um, And I think that that's a problem in academia in general, because generally everything that we do is for each other. And that means that we get to talk like way, 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 way up and like uh, intellectualize everything. And I think that that, I, I feel like if you're, if the information that you're coming up with or the ideas or the theories that you're thinking through aren't actually able to be disseminated to an everyday audience and really what's the what's the point so that means a lot thanks yeah of course okay so let's go ahead and go into your background I want to give the listeners a really good idea on how you how you got to where you are today I want to give myself a good understanding of that if you want to know the truth um (laughs) and I feel like that's you know that's a question that I get a lot it's kind of like how did you and it's and it's a really weird thing I mean the short answer is and I don't know if this comes off as like kind of corny, but like I feel really strongly in the concept of serendipity. Like I feel like when things fall into your lap that you weren't expecting, I feel like that's a pretty good sign from the universe that you need to pay attention to it. And around 2010, around that time, so about five years ago, I got into a place where I realized that, I mean, I had always been like, I'm a super type A person. I'm trying to like reel that back a little bit. Um, I call myself a recovering overachiever, but um, <laughs> that's it's hard. <laughs> and um, I used to be the kind of person that always had a five-year plan, and this is exactly what I'm doing and where I'm going, and I'm going to stay on this road no matter what happens. And I found that that actually wasn't very useful, and I don't think that it's a very useful tactic for life in general. So I told myself to stop doing that, and instead, at, you know, I would have a general sense of what I wanted to do, and then I would just let what happened happen. And that's actually how I've ended up. I mean, with the job that I have, um, even, uh, was really just offered to me, like stuff like that. But I do think the, give kind of a more concrete answer than just, you know, don't think about anything and just see what happens. Um, cause that could be dangerous too. I, uh, I was working as a high school teacher, a high school English teacher after I graduated from undergrad, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, 
and I was teaching high school there. And just at some point, like, I was like, wait a minute, I want to talk about Shakespeare and I want to talk about semicolons. I want to talk about all this stuff, but like, and I'm pumped about it. But, and my students, you know, they got pretty pumped about it too. But at the end of the day, I realized how much about sex and sexuality that they were missing. Um, and it was, that was around that time that I was starting to get interested in feminism. And it just, and feminism really opened, you know, my mind to so many things that I hadn't considered really deeply before. And just all of that combined, I was like, I need a career change. I can't do this anymore. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of what happened. I said, I'm going to quit my stable job and I'm going to take a year off and then I'm going to go back to school. And it was after I went back to school that my life kind of took the direction that it's in now. So that's really interesting. Like, it seems, it seems like you're really intuitive. Like you knew that you're, you were being pulled in a certain direction. You just kind of went with it, which Mm -hmm. is a gift. Not Mm -hmm. many people can do that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are afraid to also, because they think that we, even just from high school, the way that we talk to kids even about, you know, you're going to go to college or you're going to do this. And like, when are you going to do it? And how are you going to do it? And where are you going to go? And what, and then even, I think it's, you know, interesting the way we expect 18 year olds who are freshmen in college to like declare a major and expect what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. Like that's a lot of pressure to put on an 18 year old. (laughs) Like that's, you know, that's, that's really hard. I think that we have this culture of you have to have a plan and then you have to follow that plan. And it can be even, you know, when I decided to quit my job, which was again, a stable job, it's hard to get like fired out of teaching um, or like laid off even out of teaching that, you know, everyone thought I was, I mean, like my parents were like, are you like, what are you thinking? You know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not something that we're usually given as an option. So I want to talk about feminism because mm-hmm. I, I really, I've never had anyone on the podcast that really talks about feminism and who knows a lot about it. So let's start with a definition. What is your definition of feminism? Because I think this is something that's really misunderstood today and you have a really good grasp on, you know, the feminism movement and the, the benefits of it. So give us like, you know, a good definition we can stick with. Yeah, kind of the way that I think about feminism is I think of it as a movement and an ideology, so both a theory and a praxis, that is focused on, it's an anti-oppression movement and, and ideology that focuses mostly on eradicating patriarchy and creating justice um, in regards to gender, but that also takes into consideration how gender intersects with other identities also so like it's impossible to work to end gender justice or I mean to end gender uh inequity without also being anti-racist for example because some women are black you know so um or of color so yeah but that's I mean that's kind of the simplest answer Okay, so here's something that I've been I've been wondering for a while, just in my own head. So I love I love the I love the equality. I think it's such a great direction that we're all moving in. But there are certain things that I feel kind of like. Wh- how should I feel about this issue? So, for example, let's try to make sen- sense of this. Um, say like dating. So yeah. you want to be equal with everything. Like you like the feeling of like you each work, you put in your dues, you know, you, you have passions, you chase after them. But like when it comes to like courting, you know, and like the guy pays, the guy opens the door. I like that too. So, or like, or like feeling like, I mean, there's still that, you know, I was raised with a dad who, you know, brought home the bacon. My mom didn't work. She, she raised me and my sister. That was her job. And it mm-hmm. was a full-time job for sure. And that was the role she enjoyed and she loved. And in like, I'm not saying that necessarily that's my plan, but that's also like a a comfort thing, like feeling like you're taken care of, you're you're like secure. So can I be a feminist while still having those beliefs? Like thinking that it's okay to be taken care of by a male. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And I have sort of an interesting lens through which I can answer that question um, in that, to start, I'm, I identify as queer and I date people regardless of gender. So I've definitely been in interesting dating situations um, across the gender spectrum. Um, also, I grew up in a household opposite of yours where my mom worked and my dad stayed home and raised my brother and me um, for the most part. 
So I have like, a, but my mom doesn't identify as a feminist. So there's also that. So there's like, it's a very, um, and my parents are also very um, traditional aside from like that, the way that our households work that way. Um, my parents are very old school. So um, the answer is yes, you can be a feminist and want those things. I think the misconception comes in um, around what, what we mean and what we're arguing for when we say we want equality. Because at the end of the day, I think in a relationship especially, in a relationship, there should be equal power is what it comes down to. That there should be equal power in that relationship. So do I and my relationships want to be taken care of? Absolutely. That's part of why you get into relationships is to have someone there who's dedicated to your well-being and is going to take care of you. And you should be doing that for them as well. And I think when you think of it that way, then it's, then it's different. I mean, gender roles are, are an interesting thing. Um, and that really comes down to, the way I think of it really is it comes down to choice. What is it that you want? We all have struggles, all feminists. We talk about it all the time. All feminists have struggles where they go, I know that this thing that I like is anti-feminist, but I like it. Um, and how can you tell if you like it because it's honest and that's honestly genuinely something that you enjoy or because you've been convinced to like it? And the answer is that we'll never have an answer to that. Like, I love makeup. You couldn't convince me to stop wearing makeup. I wouldn't do it. And is that feminist? Like, so then that's the big question. Um, is it feminist because I'm choosing to wear it or is it anti-feminist because it's giving into this, you know, stereotypical role that has been handed to me as a woman? Um, how do I know if I like wearing makeup just because I really do enjoy it or because I've been convinced my entire life that I need it? I don't know. I can't answer that question. All I can do is sit down, think it through and do what makes me happy. Um, and that's really what feminism is about. And I think that's like kind of one of the biggest misconceptions is that feminism isn't about limiting choices for people or for women. It's actually about broadening them and being able to just recognize and think through how some of the choices that we make or the things that we think or the things that we accept a lot of the time um, are not concrete, that they're fluid, that they're things that could change, that we don't have to be oppressed. <laughs> it's really what it comes down to. Like oppression isn't something that we have to deal with. But yeah, I think absolutely you can be a feminist and you can want to be taken care of and you can be a feminist and like it when people open doors for you or like pick up the check. Everybody likes it when someone picks up the check. That's cool. I don't have to pay. You know, like that's awesome. But that's true for everyone. And I think that that's when it becomes something that we need to question is in a time and place now where if in your relationship things are equal, if you're both working, if you're making similar amounts of money, et cetera, why should it be, and if you're in a heterosexually presenting relationship, why should it be the man's responsibility to pay on a date? Like it shouldn't probably be. That doesn't, not every time, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but it also depends on the relationship because I also have been in relationships where I made a lot more money than say my male partner did, so I paid for things. I paid for us to go out because if I didn't, we didn't go out. And that's not me saying I'm a feminist and look at me, I'm going to pay for my male. Like that's not it. It's just, this is, we have equal power in this relationship. I have more financial power in this relationship and I want to share that with you. Um, and I think it comes down to having those conversations with your partner and making sure that you're all in agreement that this is what is happy. Um, and that, and kind of like that, that's that. Yeah. I think yeah. It's kind of like using your strengths to better the relationship. So whether your strength is uh, finances or your strength is um, like being nurturing or your strength is like, what have you using that to uh, bring you together and like make your relationship as like awesome as it can be. Yeah, right, exactly. And I think that that's, I mean, that's a point of relationships. And I used to do, um, up until relatively recently, I was working for a uh, domestic violence organization. And that was like a lot of what we did. And I worked in the education department. And basically, we just worked with high school, middle school and high school students talking about what healthy relationships look like. And that's exactly it. Healthy relationships look like ones where there's, there's some sense of equal power, not some sense, but definitely a sense of equal power. Um, but that can look different for different relationships. And as long as everyone is understanding of what they're getting into and happy with how the relationship is going, then it's, then it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you're really involved with the media, obviously. And you know a lot of the stuff that's going on in the media much more than you know, the average Joe, especially when it comes to feminism. Mm -hmm. what, what would you say are some of the things that are keeping equality and like, the feminism movement at bay, like hindering it in the media that you wish you know, would stop? 
if you have any examples of that. Oh, Lord. Well, I think that the thing about feminism, I think the biggest thing that we come up against um, is a fear of feminism. There's a fear among men at times, some men, where there's this idea that feminism's entire point is to like subvert completely 180 how society is currently built so that women are on top and men are oppressed, um, which is ridiculous. That's not what we want at all. Um, and there's this idea among women that if they have kind of what we were just talking about, if they have any beliefs or um, preferences or anything that go against what they believe feminism to be, then they can't be feminist or that feminism is like man repellent. And that if you say that you're a feminist, then you are dedicating your life to like solitude and cats. <laughs> you know, like there's kind of this weird thing. And the media really, really runs with that. Um, a lot of these lies that people believe about feminism were created, like literally created by the media, by right wing media to make feminism look bad and scary. Like even when you talk to people about um second wave feminism in like the 70s um which has problems that movement definitely had issues um and I wouldn't defend it to its death but um there's this whole idea around like the bra burning and that never happened like literally never happened bras were never burned like historically <laughs> it didn't happen but that's what everyone believes and like that's just an example of how powerful the media is um when they create narratives they create it's like they recreate history. People just start believing stuff without having any sense of whether or not it's actually true. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things that we end up fighting against is just this weird misconception around the history of feminism and the and what feminism wants to achieve. Um, and the media perpetuates that in ways, that, in, in a lot of ways, that's really frustrating. Okay, so first of all, that's hilarious that you brought up the bra burning thing because I was literally like raised <laughs> thinking that feminism equaled burning bras. Like I've always See? thought that. <laughs> so my mind's a little bit blown right now. Yeah, right? I mean, do you want to know the real story? Yeah. So like what happened was a bunch of women, like Gloria Steinem, like all, you know, all those like big names that you think of when you think about second wave feminism, they were like, hey, um, let's protest um, the Miss America pageant. And so they went to, I think, Atlantic City, um, and they had, like, a rally, and they had um, a garbage can. And it was, the whole idea was to throw away anything that kind of, like, binds you to this concept of what womanhood is. So people were throwing away stuff like tampons. They were throwing away things like, like bras, um, for example. And they did want to burn it. That was part of the plan, but they could not get a permit. So they couldn't. And so they did not. And so the freedom trash can, as it's called, ended up just being a trash can full of, it was a symbolic thing around like, what is beauty and are we being held captive in society um, around beauty? And all they wanted to say was, you know, women are more than what they look like and we're more than these products. Um, but yeah, but no, no bras were burned. Nothing was burned. Wow. Um, that, <laughs> yeah. And like, and it's even, I feel like it's so taken out of context. We were like bra burning, like people, like they, there was like a purpose to what they were doing. Like they, it was symbolic of something. Like it wasn't just like, we're so mad or we're just like burning our clothes off. Like that's like not it, it at all, but that's exactly what people think. And they think about it as like this, like angry and it's like, there's, and I mean, that's part of the problem too, is like, this idea that like if women are fed up with, um, you know, society and being treated as second class citizens, if they're fed up with it, then and I mean, I think that's a pretty good reason to be angry. You know, like there are a lot of things when you look at um, statistics around violence, when you look at sexual violence, you look at intimate partner violence, you look at how many women are being hurt, literally, um, in our society. Uh, that's something to be angry about. And just the idea that people get like, Oh, those, those women, you know, like they're so mad, those feminists, like, well, <laughs> why shouldn't we be mad? Like, yeah, rape sucks. <laughs> like, I don't know, like what world you're living in where that shouldn't make you angry, but yeah, we're angry. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's another, it's a whole thing around like policing what emotions women are even allowed to have and anger is not one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So I'm, I have another question, mm -hmm. which might be kind of touchy, not probably to you, but 
just in general. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about, like, Miss um, Clinton running for president. Oh. And, like, I, I don't, I, okay, so I know women, women do have hormones, you know, and, like, hormones <laughs> can determine how we feel. And so I, what I feel like is the biggest um, debate against having a woman president is that fact right there, like, hormones. And I know it's way over-exaggerated by a lot of people acting mm-hmm. like the hormones are just going to completely ruin our country. I don't believe that at all, but I'm wondering what are your thoughts on having a female president with, you know, the whole hormone debate? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I'm going to take the science route to answer this one, not the social science route, but the hard science route, biology. Um, so, right, so I am working on a PhD in human sexuality studies, so I do know what I'm talking about. Um, and here, here's the funny thing about the hormone argument. Um, Hillary Clinton is... Postmenopausal, you know, she, mm-hmm. I mean, she at this point in her life. I mean, I obviously don't know her medical record, but my guess is that she's probably gone through menopause. <laughs> That's going to be my guess. So, the way that hormones work in the body is that um, people who are born with a uterus and with ovaries produce more estrogen than people who are born with testicles, who produce more testosterone. So, people who are born with testicles also produce some estrogen. People who are born with ovaries also produce some testosterone, but they're, they're, they're wide. They're hugely different. So, um, for the sake of, uh, simplicity, we'll, we'll, and basically the minds of the people who have this, um, thought in their brain will refer to people who are born with testicles and produce testosterone as men and people who are born with ovaries and produce estrogen as women, although that's not always accurate. But the truth of the matter is, um, when women go through menopause, their hormones actually level out um, and they stop producing as much estrogen because estrogen is, is, is hugely responsible for basically every um, quote-unquote womanly reaction that our body has, including menstruation. Um, so when, <laughs> when we go through menopause, actually, that is the point in our life when our hormone levels are actually most similar to men's. Furthermore, the the hormone that is responsible for aggression is testosterone. So when people make this hormone argument, it's clear to me that they actually don't understand how hormones work. Because the argument is women and their hormones are going to ruin everything. And it's like, well, first of all, no, that's ridiculous. But also... Women who are past menopause are actually in a hormonal place most similar to what men's hormonal levels are. So that argument, let's just kick it out the window. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense though? Did I like that that makes sense? Yeah. So it's a really interesting argument. And again, it's just people just like making shit up. They like people don't know what they're talking about. They just make shit up. And and then that's like kind of the message that goes that gets spread. And it's also, you know, women are actually not inherently more emotional than men either. Um, that's more of a social issue. So some research has shown, for example, that babies, right? So babies who don't, oh yes, they have some socialization as babies, but not a whole lot. So babies, um, male children or babies cry a lot more than female babies do. Around school age, four or five, that flips. And the question is, well, what happened that now now girls cry more than boys do? And the answer actually is because boys are taught and told not to cry. Mm. That's it. And there's this weird, interesting cycle that happens where if you don't cry, if you stop yourself from crying um, and you don't experience crying as often, your tear ducts actually, they, they like kind of dry up. They don't work as well which then in turn makes it harder to cry. So when we think about this concept of like men not having as much emotion or men not crying or men not, you know, feeling emotions that would lead them to crying, that's actually not biologically accurate either. Um, It's more of an issue of socialization that we tell men that they can't cry, so they don't. (laughs) So um, we we allow girls to cry. I mean, you can see that even if you watch, um, I sometimes will watch people in the park or something with their kids. And if a girl falls down, it's like they all rush to her. Oh, my God, are you okay? Is everything okay, honey, honey, honey? Like, they pick her up. 
if a boy falls down, they're like, yeah, brush it off. You're fine. Like, you're two. Like, mm-hmm. this, your child fell down. Go hug them. <laughs> like, it's, it's just, it's amazing. It's, like, amazing to watch. So. So would you think that it mostly starts with, like, within the, the family? Like, that kind of. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, it's, and I think that that's kind of the thing about feminism, too, is it's a lot of just, like, a way to understand the world. Um, I mean, yeah, activism and stuff is involved, but it's also just a way to think through stuff and something that feminism kind of helps you think through is how are we socialized as gendered beings? And you can see that from, I mean, just colors right away, you know? Um, oh, you're having a girl, which is another weird assumption that because your baby can't be seen with a penis on a sonogram, then automatically, you know, whatever. But, and then they all start buying pink. It's like, it's right away. It happens. Um, the way that things are gendered or the kinds of toys or the kinds of clothes that children wear. I mean, if you look at baby clothes, even you'd be shocked to see how we gender children, like right from the start. It's, it's like terrifying. What do you have? Like, do you have any thoughts on Disney? Like, do you think that (laughs) I like legitimate question? Do you think Disney plays a big role on shaping children's minds? Like, I was thinking about this when I was writing my second book. I was kind of just, I went off on this huge tangent about Disney and it made me really upset after I got to the end of the chapter because I was thinking like how it's just like love at first sight always. Men mm-hmm. always do the rescuing. The women are always in trouble or they're in, there's some kind of, they're distraught. They're saved by the male. Mm-hmm. You know, the male never ha- is sensitive. He's just there to like protect her. And then like they get married immediately like, yeah, there's right. hardships, and then, yeah, and, like, not to mention the tiny waist, so, like, let's just, like, you know, yeah. elephant in the room, always the small waist, and, like, the bad characters in Disney are always ugly, or they're always, like, chubby or short, and, like, associating yeah. these things, and I'm wondering, like, do we, what do we do about Disney? Like, what do we do? Do we include it in our children's lives, or do we take it out if we can? I mean, I think that that's up to each you know individual parent to decide for their own children. But yeah, you're right. It's definitely it's it's again it's a part of socialization, and it's not just Disney. It's everything, right? It's all media, and it's all the world. That's really the problem. I um, mean, Disney's kind of a symptom of that. Um, Disney is an interesting thing in general, and there are a lot of people who study just that. And I, I mean, when you bring it up, people have very very intense feelings about Disney, and I mean, we all do because we all grew up with it. Um, and even like my favorite, favorite, favorite Disney movie, like that is my, like it's my entire heart is a little mermaid. But like, really, when you think about it, like this is a story about a woman who gives up her voice. She gives up her ability to speak for a man that she doesn't even know. Like, and he falls in love with her despite the fact that he can't talk to her, like, and can't communicate with her more specifically. Like that's, that's like a really bad message. Um, and yeah, so that's, there's that. We have to be honest about it. Um, I do think something, I talk about media literacy a lot, and something I think that people don't realize is that media literacy can start right away. That you can ask children as you're watching movies with them, like, what do you think would happen if she was a boy instead? Or what if she was wanted to marry another woman? How would the story be different? And I mean, of course, kids don't have like deeply analytical, you know, like cognitive ability, but they can, they can make sense out of things. Like they can make sense out of the movie as is. They can make sense out of, you know, uh, kind of like changing around like the plot, basically. They can do that. So I think that if parents want to watch Disney movies with their children, like I think that that's fine. I think that sharing that is fine. Um, I also think that it's worth talking about. A lot of um, friends of mine who are feminist parents, um, something that I think that they do that's super awesome is, like, they're cool with, like, okay, yeah, we can expose our child to, like, you know, the the average media, like Disney, for example. But they also take a lot of care to make sure that they're exposing their children to other media as well. So, like, there are a lot of great um, children's books that are feminist, which in something that's feminist also, when I say feminist, I mean like anti-oppression in general. So, um, you know, I mean, another problem with Disney is that all of the characters are white, um, almost. Um, and that's like another example of something that like now the message that children are getting is that only white people's stories should be told. And you see that in all of media, um, that that's, you know, how Hollywood presents 
um, you know, who's, who's deserving of, of screen time. And that, that's setting your children up for racism, like right there, because it's a racist, it's a racist issue. Um, so, but I think talking about that is okay. And I think that having that other media, like, oh, okay, we're going to watch this, but now we're also going to read this story about like this Latina or, you know, whatever, so that we can have these conversations or like, here's a story about a kid who has two moms or, you know, whatever it is so that we can have conversations with kids because they, you know, they pick up on it. And what you're giving children in the beginning of their life is, um, you're really, you're setting, you're setting them up to understand the world around them. And, if you don't set them up to understand the world around them in the way that the world actually exists, which is that, you know, multiple people um, and cultures exist, um, that different genders, like gender roles are, you know, not good. <laughs> if you set them up to understand that, then they have a whole different way of understanding the world than is just what's being passed on and passed on and passed on, which is what I think is the, you know, the bigger problem that we just keep on not questioning things and just like throwing at our kids the same the same stuff. And I think about it all the time when I think about my own upbringing, I'm like, what were my parents talking about? Like, why did they teach me that? You know? And like, I feel like I've been in a fortunate position to be able to unlearn a lot of that stuff or at least question it. And if, and when I had children that I could do it differently, but you know, not everybody is interested in unlearning what they've learned. And that's, I don't know, that's a barrier, I think for Mm -hmm. humanity, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the last thing that I want to touch on before we switch gears over to um, something else with, with feminism, I want to ask you, you, you mentioned like um, pageants and I was already thinking about asking you this because I, I was watching Miss Congeniality yesterday. It was just on TV mm-hmm. and then it was like, oh, this would be a great question to ask her. But so you like makeup and you enjoy feeling that way where, I mean, it, it's very obvious that the Miss America pageants are objectifying women in a way. But what if it's, like, something that makes them feel like they're sharing their gift with the world? And, like, my thing is I think that every person on this earth has a gift to share, and we can't judge each other for that gift. And what what if someone feels like their gift is being in those pageants? Mm-hmm. I think it's a question of who gets to be in those pageants. What is it that we're defining as beauty? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have trouble with the concept of beauty in general because I think that as a society we and I say this as someone who's conventionally attractive, so like I, I do have privilege in that way. But I do think that assigning value and the amount of value that we assign to beauty, and then the fact that we define beauty socially so narrowly, I think is the problem. And I don't think that inherently a beauty pageant is bad. What I think is bad is what you've got is you're showing the same kind of beauty constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, similar height range, similar weight range, similar body type, similar facial structure. Again, the race issue, mostly it's going to be white women if it's not like a world pageant. Um, And so what are we showing as beauty? I don't think that the women participating in the beauty pageant are the problem. I think the fact that beauty pageants exist in the first place is the problem. Yeah. Why are we, because there is a talent portion. People will argue there's a talent portion and you get a scholarship. Okay. First of all, there's some conflicting evidence around whether or not those scholarships are like really legit. But the thing is that, um, and yeah, okay. There's a talent portion. Cool. Um, and that's cool. People have talent and that's awesome. Um, we're still calling it a beauty pageant. We're not calling it a talent show. So there's mm-hmm. still like very clearly some focus here that we're calling it a beauty pageant. Um, and at the end of the day, it again comes down to who has access to a beauty pageant. Is it women of color? Not really. Those are the people who need, uh, the scholarships. Is it people who are growing up in low... Um, like socioeconomic situations, not usually because it costs money to be able to be in a pageant. Like you generally have to pay um, and you also have to pay for outfits and stuff like that as you're growing up and learning how to do pageantry. Um, So it's not going to be people who, it's going to be people who have disposable incomes. So like, I think it's a really big question around, you know, access and who are we giving access to beauty pageants? And I would be cool with it if it was just like, people of different sizes, shapes, colors, ages, talents, whatever, who are just like, show look how well-rounded I am. Because that's kind of like what people think. They're like, yeah, well, it's like about being well-rounded because there's a talent portion. 
Like there, okay, there's most of it is walking around. Look at what I wear. Then there's a small talent portion, and then there's this like pointless portion where you have like a sentence. You have like 15 <laughs> seconds to answer a really deep question, <laughs> you know, like about like world peace or like some political issue, and you have like 10 seconds to answer it. That's not. That is not about showing off how well-rounded women are. And why are there only beauty pageants for women? Do you see where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like a. Again, it's not the women who want to participate that I think are the problem, um, but the fact that they exist in the way that they exist and the way that they've been constructed, that's the problem that needs to be kind of thought through um, if we want it to be more more equal and give people more access to like to these things. I think that it would be great if more people had access to it, but instead we're narrowly defining what it means to be beautiful, and I think that that's the problem. And taking a step back, like thinking about the conversations that are happening outside of the competition and outside of these pageants, like preparing for the shows and the family, the extended family members and the viewers watching these things. There are all these tiny little conversations and things going on in other people's heads that are damaging, like outside of just the people that are doing these competitions, the people that are watching at home, like judging themselves because they know they could never be in it. Like regardless of whether or not you can be included, there are people all across the world, like being affected by these negatively because they're not included. They're not invited. They're not meeting the standards. And I remember like a year ago, there was someone on there that had quote a normal body and everyone was like praising that she had a normal body. But then all the people that weren't considered a normal body, like didn't have that body, like what were they considered, you know? And then these people that were bigger than this one woman who had the first normal body in a competition, well, they weren't normal anymore. Like, and that's hard. That's hard to like watch Mm -hmm. these standards completely like having to meet up, meet up to these standards time and time again. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting thing. It's also something I always find interesting is like when the Victoria's Secret fashion show is on to pay attention to my newsfeed online in different, um, on different social media and how amazing it is to watch people go, wow, this is fun. This is cool. And then it deteriorates into, I'm starting a diet on Monday. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, it's mind blowing that, and to see it and to realize that the general population doesn't realize that that's what they're doing. Um, that that's what's happening. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's wild. It really is. So speaking of dieting, it's a good yeah. transition point. How did you get so interested in eating disorder recovery? Yeah, well, I had an eating disorder, so. Okay, that, there you go. <laughs> no, that's kind of the, I, I get asked that question a lot. I'm like, well, it's a simple answer. Um, yeah, I, I actually, my relationship with my body is a very um, atypical relationship, which is that um, it was super healthy. I had a really healthy body image for almost my entire life, um, through high school, through college. I mean, like, sure, I had, like, those days. I had bad body image days. That's normal. Uh, everybody does. Um, but even like when I weighed the most I've ever weighed, which was in college, I was the happiest with my body had ever been. Like I was just like, cool. Yeah. Food's cool. And my body's cool and everything's great. Um, and to make like a long story short, I, um, I ended up in my early twenties in a emotionally abusive relationship with someone who's very image obsessed, someone who is very obsessed with, um, his body, um, and with the concept of physical attractiveness and with fitness and all of these things. And, um, he took that out on me, uh, sometimes, um, like asking me things like, do you really think you look good naked? I mean, what kind of partner asks you that? Like you're having sex with me. I hope you think I look good naked. That's weird. Um, you know, like, but he would ask me things like that or, um, you know, make comments about what I was eating or that I should go to the gym or like whatever. Um, and then when we broke up, um, he broke up with me and one of his reasons for it was that basically I ended up finding out that he was dating like multiple people at one time, which was not part of the deal. Um, and he ended up dumping me for someone who liked going to the gym. And I think that that's fine. I think that it's fine to want to like be with someone who does something similar to what you do and has similar interests. That's fine. But that wasn't really the implication, um, in what he was saying. So, we actually worked together and this was when I was a high school teacher and we worked together. So we broke up in May at the end of the, at the end of the school year. Um, and so I didn't have to see him for however, three months. Um, and I was like, Oh, I'll show him. And that's how it all started. So I think most eating disorders are a lot of people they are eating this disorder stories that they went on a diet and the diet spun out of control. That's a pretty typical story. That's what happened to me. Um, and uh, I, 
yeah, it, my eating disorder didn't last very long, which doesn't make it any less serious, but it wasn't, it didn't last a super long time. Um, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't quote unquote underweight. I was underweight for my body, for what my body likes to exist at. Normally I lost a lot of weight in a very short period of time. Um, but more than those symptoms, really the issue was, you know, I had a, I had a food, I ended up with a food and body issue. Um, and yeah. And so, but I had to get better. <laughs> so, um, I, I did and it was hard, but, um, figuring that out and figuring it out for myself and then being like, what the hell happened? I went from being like perfectly happy with myself to absolutely hating myself because of this one person. Um, and then all of these things that were happening for me on the inside that, I was like, I can't, I don't want anyone to go through that. I mean, it's hell. Like, I mean, the media depicts eating disorders as very glamorous, um, but it it's lonely and depressing and painful physically and mentally. It's, it's, a, it's emotionally taxing, spiritually taxing um, to be in the midst of an eating disorder. And I felt like it was, it's just so important that we raise more awareness about them um, and really talk about them more because they've kind of fallen out of what's in vogue, quote unquote, for the media. Um, eating disorder research and eating disorder stories kind of, they peaked in the 90s. And now people aren't paying as much attention to them anymore, but people are still getting eating disorders. People are still developing eating disorders. And so I think that it's something that we need to pay more attention to that mainstream society kind of isn't thinking about as much anymore. Um, yeah. So then I got really interested in eating disorder at recovery advocacy Um and kind of giving space and creating space for people to have those conversations and to talk about that stuff. So I really appreciate, like, first of all, you sharing the story, but also that you pointed out that the media does glamorize it. Mm -hmm. And I think that like my podcast, we talk a lot about eating disorders. It's pretty mm -hmm. much, you know, disorder eating, anything like body image. But I, I feel like a lot of the listeners for this show are coming from not just a world of like, you know, Vogue magazine and like being thin, but more of like the fitness angle. You know, it seems like something that, you know, your ex-relationship kind of involved in that, like going to the gym and then creating an eating disorder through orthorexia mm -hmm. or yeah. like clean eating in itself becomes right. know, a disorder. So how did you go about learning to be able to call out BS when you see advertisements or when you read about the glamorization of disordered eating because it is really easy to be triggered back into that mindset yeah. because you're like, I want to be like that. I want to be praised by others. How did you learn to block that out? I mean, I think it's hard and I think it's something that I don't want to say that never gets blocked out. I, I tend to think about eating disorder recovery specifically as um, managing uh, a mental health issue is what it is. Um, it's not something that for everyone ever goes away. Um, it's something that is part of your everyday life. Um, I kind of think of it as a way that your brain has been altered um, and that you have to stop yourself from doing things. You have to like, you have to let your rational like brain override kind of what, what your like orientation is and what it is that, that you feel almost more comfortable doing. Um, yeah. And, and I think self-care is a huge thing. Like there have been times, like I love Tumblr, for example, but there are times like Tumblr, the inspiration on Tumblr can get pretty overwhelming. And there are times when I have to be like, I can't go on Tumblr. Like I need to walk away because I can't look at this stuff right now. Or I'll tell people, because it's also like a, you know, a fact of life that women in particular tend to bond literally over body bashing basically. Basically, body shame themselves, and that's how women. It's actually a form of bonding among women, um, which you'll notice anytime you go out to eat with a friend, anytime you go shopping with a friend, it's a lot of, I can't eat that. I look fat in these jeans. Da 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 da. And so I'm really clear with my friends, like I, they can't talk like that around me. You know, like if I'm out to eat with somebody, like I'll be at, like the Cheesecake Factory. Like who goes to the Cheesecake Factory thinking that they're going to have a nice, nutritious, light meal? Like, that's not what it's for, you know? And I'll be there and, you know, a friend will be like, oh, I really should order a salad. Get the fuck out of here. Like, just order the pasta. Like, are you kidding me? That's, that's, no. I mean, I don't, I don't food police my friends that if they want to order salad, that's fine. That's totally fine. But it's just, you know, if you're going to have this conversation, you're going to try to, like, make me feel bad because I want to eat this or, like, you know, 
Mm-hmm. I, you know, I told them like, we're not going to have this conversation. We're not going to talk about diets while we're here eating cheesecake because that, that just seems ridiculous. And I don't care about your diet. And that's another thing that people get really offended by. Like when you tell people, like, I really don't care about your diet. Like I, that is so uninteresting. Like I couldn't care any less <laughs> about your diet. Uh, I don't want to talk about your diet. That's really, <laughs> and people get mad, you know, because I mean, in, mm. we're in a culture, a society where everyone's on a diet and everyone should be on a diet because we all want to get healthy, which is a whole other conversation, um, around how we misunderstand what health even is, um, culturally. But yeah. And so it it blows people's minds when you, when you interrupt that script and there's, you know, psychological theory to go along with that. But basically it's this idea that we all have this idea of, um, what a situation is supposed to look like. You know, you go to a restaurant, you know you're going to sit down, the server's going to come over, ask you what you want to drink. Like, you know exactly what that script looks like. If the waiter came over and asked you what you wanted for dessert before they asked you anything else, that would throw you off, right? Um, Because our social scripts are confused. We're like, wait, I don't have a script for this. I don't know what's going on right now. And so when you interrupt social scripts, it freaks people out. So if people are talking about their diet, they expect you to be like, yeah, you know, I really should get back on a diet. They expect you to say something like that. And if you completely, you know... (laughs) do something different. They can't, they can't handle it. So people get really upset. Um, but I mean, to answer your actual question, like, how do I, how do I deal with that? It's, um, it's hard. And I think it's about knowing yourself and it's about paying attention to how you're feeling. And if you are feeling triggered, finding a way to walk away. I mean, I don't read magazines. I don't own a TV. Um, obviously I'm still, I, I work on the internet, so I still have to see ads and stuff. But I mean, I try really hard to like avoid that stuff because it, I just find it painful and I find it upsetting and it's not worth it to me. So I think just knowing yourself and understanding that you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel body anxiety. And so if you're feeling body anxiety, something's wrong. Um, and that goes for anybody. Yeah. For me, I, I think it came down to like not, you know, I wanted to get that pleasure high somewhere. And for me, counting calories and like dropping a pound gave me that high. So I had to just go find my high somewhere else. And whether that be now in writing like articles or my podcast, like it gives me that feeling times 20. So it's about finding that area. Like for you, I'm assuming it's researching and speaking about these, these subjects you're passionate about. And like that gives you those long lasting highs, not just that short term high that's, you know, really just based off of self-sabotaging. Yeah, well, right, exactly. It's about finding, you know, what is it that, what actually makes you happy? Some people word it as, um, what are you actually hungry for? Like, what is the hunger that you have? There's something missing in your life that's making you focus so hard on your body. So what is it that you're actually missing and how can you, how can you satisfy that? How can you find fulfillment? Um, and that's a hard thing to ask people because a lot of people don't know and they, they don't think about it. When you work with people through eating disorders, because you do, you work with people, right, with recovery? Mm-hmm. Or, okay, yeah. Do you ever give them, like, the – do you do you make it clear that it's a management and it's not a recovery, like, permanently, that it's just management? Yeah, I try not to define, like, what people's experience with their eating disorder or their recovery is. So whatever, however people want to explain it to me and how they're understanding it, um, I try to, you know, work with first. Um, but the thing about eating disorder recovery that's really interesting is that nobody is really, no one really talks about eating disorder recovery. It's like people talk about, um, eating disorders and people talk about the, uh, physiological aspects of recovery. They talk about even in eating disorder recovery programs, it's all about like, um, refeeding or like changing your relationship with food so that you can eat, quote-unquote, normally or typically. You can eat like a typical person. And then that's it. And then you're gone. And that's all it was. Um, and, like, they send you off with, like, you know, some notes about, you know, with, like, a meal plan and things like that to make sure that you stay on this this plan that has absolutely nothing to do with the emotional turmoil but is all focused on, you know, the physical aspect, which is part of it. But – I think what people are really missing is they're missing this whole other sense of like uh, all these other things that eating disorder recovery is about. And because no one's talking about it, everyone is confused about recovery. Talk to anybody in eating disorder recovery, they have no friggin' idea what eating disorder recovery is. They're like, I don't know, am I recovered? Um, and it's, it's confusing because you're like, okay, well, I'm having these thoughts. Does that mean if, if I was recovered, I wouldn't be having these thoughts at all? So I try to explain to, I try to, explain to people like, the way that it makes sense to me is that recovery... Similar to if you're um, 
like a soap alcoholic. If you're in, if you're recovering from alcoholism, it doesn't mean that you don't want to drink. That's not what it is. That's not what recovery is. It's about managing the drive that you have to drink. Um, and some people liken eating disorders to addictions in that way that it's really about trying to take control of what it is your brain is telling you it craves so that you can, you can interrupt it and say, no, um, that, that's not good for me. Um, and for some people that really works, because I think people get really hung up on, especially because people with eating disorders, there, there tends to be pretty high, particularly with anorexia or other restrictive eating disorders, but uh, a high correlation of people who have high anxiety, who have um, high obsessive and compulsive drives, um, people who are perfectionists. So if you tell people there's like you, if you tell people or imply that there's such a thing as perfect recovery, that's actually exacerbating or like aggravating the the same like parts of the brain that mm-hmm. are causing the eating disorder. So it's really not helpful when you tell people, you know, that there's something that they need to be striving for. Like we need to get away from like telling people to strive for something specific and instead allowing people to just strive for what they feel is like a healthy, happy self. Um, and that that can be different things to different people. So I think that the idea that there is some, there's magically going to be this day when you can look at a cupcake and not have feelings about it. I don't think that's realistic. I think that it's more the goal should be, I'm looking at this cupcake, I'm having feelings about it, and now I'm going to logically decide what I want to do in this situation. Um, do I want to eat this cupcake or not? You know, like, and I think, do I want this or not? You know, that, that should be it. That should be the That's what a, the, an average person can do is just go, either I want this cupcake or I do not want this cupcake. They're, end of story. There's nothing else about it. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think that, that's how I think people should maybe think about recovery more because I think it, it puts less stress on people than thinking that there's some like magic cure and this day will come where everything is back to how it was before they developed an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. yeah. Cause like those feelings and your past, you'll, you'll always have your past. You'll always have your history. And whether you see that cupcake and you remember that one time, that fleeting time where you just like ate 15 cupcakes in one sitting, like that memory is still there, but it's not going to determine or sway you left or right on how to act mm-hmm. in the situation mm-hmm. now. And I think that's when you're really truly on that right path. Whenever, yeah, you have these memories, you remember that one time, but it's not going to determine where you go from here. It's like that, that memory is there, but it's not going to be like your end all be all that, you know, using that experience to determine how you're going to go about this situation. You can kind of look past it logically. I'm I'm glad you said logically. Um, Okay. And I want to know from you, if you think, cause like we know it's not about the food, it's about the other situations going on in life always which I, I completely agree with the whole eating disorder thing. It's not a meal plan's not going to fix it. It's not about the food that you're yeah. eating. It's about whatever else is going on. Like whether you're scared of rejection, not having love, you know, abandonment, you know, not having control, whatever. Do you think that sometimes, cause I was listening to another podcast today and a girl was talking about how she was struggling with, you know, all these other things. I mean, it was an hour of just like family abuse, all this other stuff, never feeling like she's enough, not enjoying life, blah, blah, blah. And her thing is running, you know, she feels the best when she's doing a marathon because she's running, you know, it's just a way to like escape. And at the end, the, um, the host of the show was saying that they wanted them to work on all these other things, like feeling like you're enough, um, welcoming love into your life again, and continue to run hours a day if you want to continue to diet if you want to just focus on the welcoming love in and, you know, he knows that it's not about the food. It's not about the running addiction. But at the same time, it felt a little bit strange for me to hear, like, there wasn't even a little bit of maybe try to back off a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about that? Is it fine for, you know, I know it's different for every case, obviously. Yeah. Generally, could it be okay to keep up with these habits and just work on the thing that is not food related? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, my gut reaction to hearing what you said, he said was like, "Ah, I don't think... Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, people will ask me a lot, uh, like on Tumblr and stuff, they'll be like, Hey, I'm in eating disorder recovery. I really want to get back into the gym. What do I do? <laughs> and it's like, that's a, that's a hard, that's a tough one. And they think that the answer is exactly what you said. It's a different case for everybody. 
I think that it is possible to uh, to enjoy being active. I mean, I don't think that you go into eating disorder recovery. Now you can never exercise or else you're going to be triggered and you're going to fall back into eating disorder. Like that's, you know, that's a little unfair. I think that that, that gives no agency to people. Um, I think I, I, I the eat, again, this could be a whole podcast itself. I think one of my major issues with eating disorder recovery and the way we talk about it is that we don't talk about it holistically. We talk about it as if people are just this problem and we're going to solve this problem and that's going to be it. Um, rather than, there are multiple facets to everybody's life. And so I like the idea of, okay, let's treat what the actual issue is. Like what are the feelings that you're having that are caught that might be causing you to feel triggered and let's address those. Um, but I think a lot of times, and again, our culture is so interesting in the way that we understand the concept of health because being on a diet is not healthy for anybody. Like that's just, that's just a medical fact. Um, that is considered controversial because of the way we've been brought up to understand health. But if you actually look at the research, I just, I already am envisioning the emails I'm going to get for saying this. If you actually look at the research though, it shows that one, that dieting does not work. You cannot lose a significant amount of weight and keep it off for a significant amount of time. The research says that about 3 to 5% of people who lose a significant amount of weight can keep it off for over five years. So dieting doesn't work, first of all. Secondly, it actually, um, most people yo-yo diet. They don't, cha- they don't do a lifestyle change. Like a lifestyle change, I guess, is one thing. But most people yo-yo diet. They go on a diet for a little while. The diet, quote-unquote, fails. They stop for a little while. Then they go, oh, my gosh, I have to go on a diet. They go back on a diet. That actually wreaks havoc on the body. That's actually very unhealthy for the body. The body gets very confused about what the hell is going on, and it really ruins your metabolism, um, which only leads you to, to gain more weight when you do stop dieting. So it's, um, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And uh, so, yeah, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't recommend anybody going to diet ever. Um, Someone who's been in eating disorder recovery, I think that if they want to go on a diet, that's a huge red flag, huge red flag. Um, but also, it's someone who's, who's in eating disorder recovery who wants to get back into anything that they did while they had an eating disorder, I think is, you know, let's think about it. And what is your support system like? Who do you have for support in your life? Do you have a medical mental health professional? Do you have counseling services available to you? Do you have friends? Like, what does your support system look like right now? And can you depend on them as you start this process? And are you going to be honest with yourself about what your feelings are? Because it starts small. It starts with, I want to start going to the gym. Then it become, it can become into a, you know, this huge full-blown problem. So are you going to be paying attention to that? And if something is going wrong, are you going to reach out to your support system? Um, like I kind of recommend to people when they ask me about stuff like that, like, can I go to the gym again? Yeah, you can, yes, you, it's not that you can never step foot in a gym, but if something about the gym in particular is triggering, maybe you want to get your physical activity a different way. Maybe if you went, if you were a runner and you had gone running and that, that was something that became an obsession that you were doing compulsively, maybe you don't want to run again. Maybe you want to do something different, um, so that it's not, that it has less likely to be a triggering experience, but I think it's really about knowing yourself and being honest with yourself about why you're doing what you're doing. Because I also see a lot of people who go from eating disorders to quote-unquote healthy eating. Whatever that means. But whatever they think it means. Um, or people will be like, oh, I'm really into fitspiration now. Cool, like that's basically thin spiration in a sports bra. Like there's mm-hmm. no difference. You know, mm-hmm. like you're just, you're shifting obsession. And I think that we need to be a little bit more honest with ourselves about our, what our intentions are. Um, which is hard. I think that it's hard is what it is. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I could not have said that better myself. So <laughs> we're coming up on the hour here. Melissa, yeah. this has probably been one of the most engaging interviews I've ever had because I had so many questions for you. So thank you so much for coming and <laughs> no, joining so us excited. on the show. Yeah. I had a good time and you're actually like a really great interviewer. Sometimes I do these and I'm just like bored, but I wasn't bored today. Oh, Don't tell anybody who I've been bored with, but I wasn't bored. So That's, <laughs> that's awesome. Was- thank you <laughs> yeah. so much. I appreciate that. So moving forward, where can my listeners find you? Yeah, totally. You can, my website is melissafabello.com where you, there's a contact form there. There's like booking information. Um, all my articles, all my YouTube videos are right there. Um, and also some social media links. So Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, you can find them all over there. Awesome. All right. I'll make sure that I have the 
show notes. We'll have all the links to that. And um, you just go to maddiemoon.com slash mbm47 and you'll see this episode. Thank you again, Melissa. We'll have to get you on the show another time. Yeah, absolutely. Bye. Bye.